Boobap Jazz. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short from my dark eyes. Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. I'm dreaming of the seven moons. Oh, I see what's new. Bring me shelter. I will not harm you. Bring me shelter, please. Bring me shelter. I will not harm you. I would shelter you. People would do anything for their families. It could happen to anyone anytime. Somebody in France, somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just drew lines on maps. There are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders and this has caused a significant amount of conflict. There are a lot of people who need safety. It is really cruel for a country like Australia to have policies that are focused only on pushing people away. What we're seeing is a number of people that remain in a state of limbo. And when non-sustainable land use combines with climate change, the crisis of refugees... I wasn't able to go and play with children. I had to go and really be an adult from a very young age. I think that's something that a lot of migrant children can relate to. Really, it was a dream for me to reunite with my family. I was just praying and hoping that that day will come one day. I think it's very important for people to understand that people have their own dreams as well and they're wanting to change the world with everybody else. Refugee Radio, 855 AM, 3CR. We want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land who we are broadcasting from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and respect the elders past, present and emerging and their ongoing struggle. Welcome to Refugee Radio this week on 3CR, listening on 855 AM or on 3cr.org.au. This week we're going to be listening to an interview from 2016 which is produced by Women on the Line about the project called A Disturbed Earth. This project is actually still in motion and this is for a documentary which is still being filmed. It is focused on a woman called Rehab's father, a Palestinian refugee and about his village being destroyed back in 1948. Considering it's the anniversary of the second intifada for Palestine this week, I thought this would be a good chance to play this interview. Have a listen. Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. You know, it was then, I think, for me, that I started to question, you know, what happened here? What took place that an entire village could just be written out of history like this? An entire village with folk songs and poems and... and, and you know, celebrations of the wheat harvest with olive orchards and almond trees and what could happen that could just 
shake this entire place and disturb the earth of that place and see the expulsion of all of its people. This episode of Women on the Line, we speak to documentary filmmaker Rehab Sharida about her project A Disturbed Earth, in which she embarks on a journey with her father, a Palestinian refugee, back to his home village, which was destroyed in 1948. When I asked Rehab about the context of A Disturbed Earth, she began by describing what has taken place in her father's village. So my father's village is a small farming village, um, and the people there are Falah, um, you know, peasant farming community. And, uh, you know, basically for generations, you know, have lived there and, and farmed the land. And in late 1948, in October 1948, so that is about six months after the State of Israel was established, um, you know, Jewish militias at the time invaded the Galilee and basically kind of took over most parts of it. So there still remains a few villages there that are, in, that are inhabited by Palestinians. But for the most part, it's been like ethnically cleansed of, of the people who were from there. So that includes my father's village, which was invaded on the 29th of October. And there was a massacre that took place at the time of about 74 men. Now, the men of the village had gathered um, when they heard that the, the, the troops were kind of, you know, the besieging troops were getting closer to the village. They created a front around the village. And... As a result, because they did kind of stand up and try to resist um, and the Jewish militias had suffered a few casualties, when they finally did enter, they punished the village by committing the massacre that they did. Uh, so they basically rounded up most of the, the males between 14 and 60 and blindfolded them and, and executed them. Um, and, and this happened in front of their families in order to scare them from, from returning. So it was quite a traumatic and, and, and violent experience, you know, of the destruction of the village. Um, those that survived the massacre went by foot over the border into Lebanon, which, you know, the village is close to the border of, of Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they went over by foot and lived in refugee camps there ever since. So that's, that's the backstory. That's basically what happened in my father's village in 1948. I asked Rehab how old her father Fouad was when these events took place. He was yeah. nine years old. He was nine years old, and there are, there are, I guess, for him, when he recalls the story to me, he's, you know, it's the story of a nine-year-old, you know, it's from the perspective of a nine-year-old, which is really interesting for me, because, you know, my father's now 77, I think, 76, but he's telling me stories, yeah, from the eyes of, of a child, so it's, um, the project has been interesting in, you know, the way it moves backwards and forwards in time, um, and... You know, I mean, there's, there's, he, yeah, he, he does remember most of what took place, and he was a witness to the massacre as well. And you know, he lost his family along the way. You know, crossing over into Lebanon, there was a bridge that his family was crossing over on, and the bridge had exploded before he got to it. So, that, I mean, they thought that he died in the in the explosion, uh, and kept, you know, walking and mourning him as they kept marching towards Lebanon. And 21 days later, basically, uh, the family dog, you know, must have smelt my dad or something, but as he was going through some rubbish for some food, um, the family dog recognised him, and and that's how he got reunited with his family in South Lebanon. Uh, and basically, the journey that the film is following is a journey of myself and my father going back to the village, 
from Australia, so travelling through the refugee camps of Lebanon, which most of the elders still live in today, uh, those that are still alive, of course. Um, many have, you know, many died in the refugee camps in Lebanon. But those who are still alive mostly live in Lebanon, and so we'll be visiting those camps and eventually visiting the village. But the story, in a sense, is a kind of reconstruction of, of history, you know, with most... Most colonialisms come equipped with, you know, with weapons and a mythology. And there's certainly a mythology that has been created around the story of Palestine and what took place. And so this, this film, this journey that the film follows is, is about reconstructing that, that story and that history and that history, um, you know, from the perspective of the people who experienced it. The project began forming in 2004 when Rehab was able to travel to her father's village. I did visit. In fact, um, you know, as I said before, the village was completely destroyed, except for about three or four buildings, actually, that still stand there. But for the most part, the village is in rubble. Um, so I dug through the bits of rubble um, and found, um, you know, bits of broken pottery and all sorts of little pieces, you know, the bottom of a vase, the, the handle of an oil jar, um, of a large ceramic oil jar, things like that. Um, so I, you know, started to ask more serious questions than I had before. And out of that research, I guess, I decided to make a film about the process of putting the pieces of that picture, of that fragmented picture together. Because in a sense, the story of Sofsaf, which is the name of my village, the story of Sofsaf is as fragmented as its people, and its people are everywhere, like literally in, in, in you know, um, living all over the world. And so bringing that story back together through oral history and through many other means is basically what this, what this film journey will, will follow. In describing the way the film will be made, Rehab emphasised that in addition to a more literal reconstruction of dates and events, that particular frameworks and mythologies were extremely significant in understanding identity and connection to land. I have a history um, as an activist and... You know, earlier when I was talking about the mythologies that are created by colonialism, in the case of Palestine, I mean, you know, Australia, for example, has its mythologies of Terra Nullius and etc., which now, obviously, for those who are slow to come to the <laughs> um, understanding of what took place here, understand that it was never Terra Nullius. Um, but, you know, it, Palestine has its own mythologies as well. And so, you know, to demystify these kinds of this mythology from an activist point of view, can be really limiting and problematic because colonialism forces that land to be seen as a commodity. And so as an activist, you find yourself speaking within a framework that kind of strips, it, you know, it strips people of an understanding and connection to land, for example, which is sort of bastardized through the process of trying to defend it within mm -hmm. a colonial context, if that makes sense. So for Indigenous people, you know, connection to land has nothing to do with any real estate value or any kind of nationalism even. I mean, nationalism is another thing that's forced by colonialism. For Indigenous people everywhere, it, you know, connection to land is about a story continuum that has at its centre a reverence for the land, recognising that land is the source of life. And so that sort of gets, you know, as an activist, you find yourself moving away from that. And, you know, you're reading, you find yourself reading UN resolutions and UN documents, but really it's about olive trees. <laughs> so I think as an activist, I found that limiting. And, 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 you know, I think 
again, connection to land happens outside of the violent paradigm of borders and nationalism and real estate. You know, connection to land is, is a, whole, a whole other trip. And so I think through this film process for me, as someone who has an activist history, it's, it's a way to, um, you know, be self-determining in the way the story is being told, not just to tell it from the perspective of those who experienced it in the sense that this is their version of events, but from the perspective of the people who experienced it in the sense that how they experience land and, and the relationship with land and the relationship with place. And so therefore what displacement means and not from a paradigm created by, you know, colonial violence. Giving voice to place is an important facet of a disturbed earth. And as part of this, solidarity with First Nations peoples in the context of the land now known as Australia forms a key part of the film. I've spent a lot of time here with different First Peoples of this continent in, in their countries. And I've come to myself learn a lot about how connection to land happens, you know, in a physical sense, because I never grew up in Palestine. I never had that opportunity. Uh, precisely because I, I'm Palestinian from from a part of Palestine which has now been claimed to be Israel. So precisely for that reason, I've been forbidden from living there. So I, the only framework I've ever had really is is, is witnessing, you know, the connection between First Peoples of this continent and and the land in which they live on and care for. And so I, I, um, I mean, for example, you know, I, I spent some time at the Bentley blockade with the Ridgeable Warrable mob that were there, I mean, that was, it was on the country. And, you know, we camped for seven weeks straight and there were many times when we'd be walking or sitting around the fire and just to hear the land speak through the mouths of its carers, i.e. to hear, the, you know, these people talk about different things that might be happening as we're passing, you know, um, the creek or, you know, to hear the land speak in that way, for me, just it really resonated with me because I... I mean, coincidentally, at the time, I had printed off a lot of information about the native wildlife in the Galilee as part of the research for this film. And so, I mean, for the first time in my life, I was looking at and getting to know some of these animals and some of these freshwater springs, looking at them on a dodgy photocopy (laughs) that I just printed off and hearing these stories from the mob that I was spending time with about their connection to, you know, the animals that surrounded them. And these are stories that have happened over generations and generations and are ways to understand the land, ways these stories, you know, provide information about how to, yeah, how to understand the place that you're in and and form a relationship with it. And so it, it was that simultaneous thing of learning about the animals in the Galilee and hearing these stories that gave me a sense of just the power of allowing the land to speak, and th- and therefore we decided that you know, within this film project, definitely um, that's the way in which the land will be treated. I asked Rehab about what kind of film techniques she would use to evoke place in this way in the documentary. I mean, there are definitely uh, there are definitely techniques, but there's also even if we just talk about it conceptually, I can give you a more concrete example that there's there's a mountain close to our village called Jadamak Mountain. And it's basically, in my research, I've also discovered that villages that, that basically circle the mountain's foot, you know, there's lots of poems and, and songs, folkloric poems and songs written about this mountain. And now 
what currently sits there now is basically one of Israel's largest military bases. Now that, I mean, if you look at that comparatively, in one instance, you know, the mountain is sung to. In another, it's, it's basically a cradle of death. So the heart of the mountain has been ripped out in order to create the space for fighter jets to be able to fly out from. So that, that's just an example of the difference between a kind of settler resistance, which can turn a mountain, a majestic mountain, <laughs> into a military base, compared to a, an indigenous existence, which kind of has a reverence towards those kinds of natural icons, natural places. Women on the Line On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. We're bringing you an interview with documentary filmmaker Rehab Sharida about her project, A Disturbed Earth. I think in the recent article in New Matilda, um, which we'll post a link to when this goes to air as well, um, where you're speaking with Patty Gibson, you say the colonial experience of living on a place as opposed to the indigenous experience of living with, with a place. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think cinema will allow kind of the opportunity to express that, to show to show that kind of relationship, to give to show the contrast, I guess, between both. I mean, in one instance, you had, you know, I could name ten different types of things that they planted in my village. But now, when you go to the fields of the Galilee, they're all monocrop commercial farming, and so there's those differences as well, which make it really clear that there's a different kind of relationship with land. In one instance, it's to be mined or to be, you know, commercially farmed. Or, you know, the Dead Sea, for example, is being mined for some sort of fertiliser. And it's the same thing here. I mean, I spent some time at the Lead Forest and Gomorrah mob there weren't able to enter the forest to perform ceremony over the, the graves of their, of their relatives. And I saw the impact that that had on that community, not being able to do that. And in fact, you know, we have the same experience. There was a massacre in our village and we were never allowed to perform proper ceremony over them, mm-hmm. never allowed to, to bury them in a dignified manner. And so that experience, again, is another experience that's shared between Palestinian and First Peoples of this continent. And again, there's mining companies that are restricting them. So it's governmental and corporate, which is a similar process in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Now that the local fishermen have been you know, removed and they're replaced with commercial, commercial fishing. So it's a process, uh, you know, colonialism, neo-colonialism involves a lot of corporate control over indigenous lands. And so that is also another difference. I mean, sure, you've always got natives that are happy to sell their land off to whatever kind of commercial interest, but for the most part, Indigenous people don't, don't roll that way. <laughs> and so definitely that's, that's something that the film will address, just that difference in, in terms of relating to place and, and relating to, you know, the source of life. Again, I'll, I'll come back to that, you know, land is the source of life. So our relationship with that, I think, is very, um, very telling, you know, about our... <laughs> about our worldviews, you know, land is not there to be dominated. It, yeah, I think that, that's, that that distinction will definitely be explored in the film. I noticed in the, um, some of the material for the crowdfunding of the film, you, you note that when the village was attacked in 1948, it was, it was during the olive harvest. And that's right. I yeah. suppose that seems, you know, relevant to me in terms of the, 
the importance of the rhythms of things and, you know, ways of living which are disrupted or disturbed to use the... the dis- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, the village very much lived in rhythm with the seasons. You know, my father talks to me and he remembers um, these things. I, you know, he talks to me about the, the um, wheat harvest, for example, where they would, the entire village would participate in this celebration. And it's a way to kind of make, I guess, a difficult job <laughs> fun. But everyone would participate and it would become this big festival. And then they'd also have a similar thing at the beginning of summer to welcome in the sun. So it's very much in rhythm with season and, um, and harvest. And, I mean, even, you know, my father had to make up a date for his birthday, actually, when he came to Australia. Um, but all he knows is that he was born in the olive harvest. He, too, was coincidentally born in the olive harvest. So... You know, that's just to give you an idea of the relationship with the season and, mm-hmm. and how it, that was an intricate part of, of, of daily life there, which yeah. again has been lost with kind of the new ways in, in which the settler communities now living there. You know, that's all changed as well, and that's been lost and fragmented and absolutely disturbed. Yeah, that's absolutely another another thing that the film will explore. Through, through the testimonies of some of the survivors, we will be looking at the way life took place, you know, day-to-day life took place in the village prior to the invasion. I mean, to look at the Australian context of a lot of the construction of this film, it's, it's as though you're not, by raising ideas around Indigenous relationship with place and land, you're not just acknowledging the the context of the construction of this film, but really it's almost as though you and your families um, almost living in exile in this settler society is a really fundamental part of your understanding of, of what has happened in Palestine. Yeah, it's been very fundamental in helping me to check my understanding because, like I said, it's not having lived there. It's just the way in which, for me, the way in which I've learned about how to even connect to a land or how to find a framework or the language of connecting to land has come to me from spending time with First Peoples of this continent. And it's been very, you know, it's, it's very much informed my position about Palestine and vice versa. Being Palestinian has informed my position about what has happened here because the story of a disturbed earth is not unique to Palestine. <laughs> Absolutely not. I, I, I wish it was. I mean, I wish it hadn't happened. I wish it wasn't as prevalent as it is, but it's happened everywhere, and it's certainly happened here. And it's, I live in the Northern Rivers region, the Northern Rivers of New South Wales, and, you know, you, you can't step too far without coming close to a massacre site. You know, so this, mm-hmm. this is a blood-stained land as well, and there have been fair share of massacres and, and a slow genocide which has followed you know, in the form of high rates of incarceration, of black deaths in custody, of, of forced removal from children um, that's happened under so many guises, you know, since the stolen generation policy supposedly ended. So, and, mm. and you know, removing people from their ways of life and, and, and disturbing those ways of life, that's, they're also forms of genocide. And so to, to live in this country and to grow up in this country and to witness that, to be a witness to that, you know, as a settler, who has a certain set of privileges, you know, as a migrant settler, like, you know, when I say migrant, I mean non-white, even though, of course, you know, white people here are also migrants. But, you know, being, uh, you know, from a non-white background, of course, our experience here as non-white migrants is one of marginalization, but still very privileged compared to the people who actually come from here. 
And that's a, that's a disturbing experience in and of itself. And so that's also informed me a lot. And when I visited Palestine for the first time and I sat on the bench in Tel Aviv and I watched Israelis as they walked by and, and, and I had just spent time in a refugee camp in the West Bank, three months in a refugee camp in the West Bank. And so I'm sitting on, you know, Tel Aviv is a coastal area, sitting there watching the beach and watching, you know, just daily Israeli life, I guess, <laughs> passing by. And I'd just been asked by a girl in this refugee camp if I would take her with me to Australia because she wanted to see the beach. And she comes from this area that I was sitting in, you know, just down the road from the area that I was sitting in, which is on, right on the beach. And so I just, you know, I thought to myself, no matter how progressive or whatever it is, an Israeli standing in front of me now might be, they still get to enjoy the sunset on this water in a way that the people who are from here can't. And that gave me some perspective on my experience in Australia. That no matter how much I understand what has happened here, it doesn't change the fact that I get to enjoy privileges here in a way that people who are from here don't. I mean, just not being monitored by the police as a community as much is, is a privilege, <laughs> let alone the list of other privileges that we get. As, as you know, So it kind of led me to understand that there's a lot more than just you know, knowing about the history and informing about ourselves about the history, there needs to be an active kind of listening, I guess, to the people who have cared for this land for so much longer than, you know, my, than how long my mother have been here. And so that's been an interesting process for me. And I feel that even if you put aside altogether, if you put aside ideology, you know, I don't just think that it's important to listen to First Peoples stories because of my ideological position about it, but even just from a from the point of view of survival, First Peoples know how to care for the land. And so I have a I have a particular respect for people that understand that land is life. And so for me it's been very, very informative to hear those stories, you know, in in my time in Australia. In terms of supporting the project, the film is currently being crowdfunded. We are crowdfunding at the moment, so it finishes on the 17th, that's tomorrow. (laughs) And basically we're looking for people to support this phase of production. And basically, I may as well mention the website. It's on the Australian Cultural Fund website, but the exact link for the project is australianculturalfund.org.au slash projects slash a dash disturbed dash earth dash development dash funding forward slash long url <laughs> but that's a way in which people can donate towards the project all contributions in australia are tax deductible otherwise people can follow us on facebook we have a page called a disturbed earth on facebook for updates or ways to support Maybe it's a bit difficult to say at this point, but in terms of the production of the film, when do you hope that listeners might be able to view the documentary if all goes to plan? Uh, it does depend on funding, but funding has been going well and we, we're confident that you know, it will continue to go well because I, there's enough people out there, we've learnt by now, that, that want to see this story told and believe that it's important, you know, it's an important story to tell. Uh, so if all that goes uh, according to schedule sometime next year. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada and you're listening to 3CR Pro-Palestinian Happily Proud Radio.
You're on Refugee Radio on 3CR and we've just been listening to an interview with Rehab from the project called A Disturbed Earth. Just a reminder that that was produced nearly five years ago, so some of the information may be out of date. But as they're still filming this documentary, I thought it'd be great to just remind people it is still in process. And that, of course, the second Intifada anniversary is on the 28th of September, so that's just coming up. So I thought it'd be good to have a chance to listen to some stories about those who are displaced by the ongoing struggle in Palestine. That's what we've got time for this week on the show. I'll put some links up on our 3CR page on Refugee Radio so you can follow our Disturbs Earth ongoing project and when they'll have the documentary ready for everybody to see. Thanks for listening. Kafias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter.